0: Hello there. My name is Kathleen, and this is the Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is about radical common sense and features Gregory Seville, a spearhead for crime prevention through environmental design. Greg is an urban planner and criminologist with expertise in crime prevention and neighborhood planning. Since the original air date of this episode, he has gone on to create Alternation, a firm specializing in safe growth A neighborhood planning system that helps leaders and community residents co-create livable, imaginative, and safe neighborhoods. In this episode, Debbie and Greg discuss how crime analysts can enhance their department's learning culture and crime prevention techniques. Something that Greg and Debbie touch on is the fundamental changes necessary to spark curiosity in problem solving and moving forward, and specifically a better delivery of safety and prevention policing services. Linked in the notes are several resources for neighborhood planning and crime prevention. I was able to connect with Greg in preparation for this episode, and he shared some updates on his work. Linked in the notes are several resources for neighborhood planning and crime prevention. Since the original episode back in 2009, Greg has produced a wealth of knowledge, including evaluations of safe growth and articles regarding radical common sense in prevention work. If you'd like an example of what prevention work looks like in action, there's a link to a video showcased at the Smart City Expo, h 22, about his work in Helsingborg, Sweden. So be sure to check it out and see how you can implement the ideas of safe growth and be your community's change agent. Now let's get into today's episode.
1: Today's topic is radical common sense. The analyst is change agent. Our guest is Gregory Seville. Greg is an urban planner and former Canadian police officer. He is a worldwide leader in crime prevention through environmental design. Greg has two decades of experience as a training consultant to the U.S. Department of Justice and has worked with specialists at the Sydney 2000 Olympics, the Japan Urban Safety Research Forum, and the Royal Canadian Mounted, Canadian Mounted Police. He trains security and intelligence specialists in critical infrastructure protection as an adjunct professor at the Joint University of New Haven. U.S.-Sandia National Laboratories National Security Program. I took a, week- I took a week-long crime, anal- crime analysis and mapping class with Greg and Chuck John um, years ago, and it was the best training I ever received as an analyst. So thus, I am really honored to have Greg on the show. Hello, Greg. How are you?
2: Hi, Deborah. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much. We've been talking about doing a show for a while, so finally we get to do it. Um, but before we, we talk about our topic, could you explain what, Crime Prevention through Environmental Design, also known by the acronym SEPTED, is to some of our listeners who will be unfamiliar with the term.
2: Oh, sure. Crime Prevention Design uh, started back in the 60s with a book by a, an urban, urban, uh, urban planner or actually urban writer named Jane Jacobs in New York City. And uh, she wrote this book called Life and Death of Great American Cities. And what she was trying to talk about was the relationship between where crimes happen in the physical environment and the design and the architecture and planning of those spaces and, and that we can have a role in minimizing opportunities for crime. So over the decades what's happened is a whole uh, training program and, and philosophy of, of crime prevention has evolved uh, using physical uh, strategies like landscaping and lighting and things like that to try to minimize crime opportunities in the physical environment. So SEPTED is taught uh, throughout uh, the world really it goes by different names, like situational crime prevention and, and the Design Out Crime Program. But essentially, it's about uh, crime opportunity reduction.
1: And, and so um, as we – I know that was um, one reason I enjoyed your class, um, the training I received. And I had a lot of training, so I, mean, I, I'm, I was overtrained actually, from my job. Yeah. What I enjoyed is that we actually went out into the environment to look at – at the at the um, physical environment, but not only that, we we talk to people who who live who worked in the in the um, community, and some of the things we'll be talking about today have to do with um, your notion, what you call safe growth, and I I would like to introduce the audience to that concept. What safe sure. growth is.
2: You know, I mean, the whole bit about training, I mean, this is, when we talk about radical common sense, I mean, you know, common sense is a catchword, and in, in, particularly in law enforcement, you hear it used all the time, and it's very much a used and abused term. We, You know, we never really clarify, what, what is common sense? If it's so common, how come everybody doesn't have it? You know, when I was a police officer, we used to say this all the time. Well, the problem there is they lack common sense. But really, when you think about what that means, it's very fuzzy and very vague. And one of the things that I discovered is when you do training, the common sense, the real common sense what I call radical common sense that goes along with training is about bringing the student, bringing the learner to the place where they're going to do the actual learning. That is, too many courses, too many workshops in crime prevention, in crime analysis. You're sitting in a classroom. You're watching a PowerPoint. You're getting PowerPointed to death. And you have a talking head or what we call a sage on the stage and you're trying to somehow absorb this material, which is all about context. It's all about where and when and who the crime is involved with. So what we've done is we've used teaching methods that get folks out of the classroom, get them onto the streets, and talking to the real people where crime is really happening. Because, you know, crime happens on the street. If we're not down there learning it where it happens, um, you know, we're kind of missing the point there. So, you know, the hands-on learning is a Big key strategy for getting folks in neighborhoods and getting analysts to uh, to learn how to do this practically.
1: And so, how what do you think um, we can do? We speak about. I know. I think an analyst can be a change agent. I really. The reason I do this show and I I have my blog, Analyst Corner. Um, blogspot.com, is, is that I think that the role of analysts analyst in um, bringing information, bringing some of that data that they often are just getting at their desk, but combining it with the other knowledge, all the knowledge we have. In fact, I, I think of a term um, looking at the intelli- idea of intelligence-led policing, but an intelligence preparation of the community community that we would actually bring all the things we know together in the community and make better choices about how we um, create safety. And I'd like to know more about your thoughts on, on the, the role of the analyst as change agent and the role of the community and intelligence.
2: Well, you know, this is a real bugaboo for me because, you know, over the years, talking with folks who are in communities trying to do prevention and community development people and crime analysts who are, who are looking at the patterns. Um you, you ask questions, for example, what actually happens in, in, on the street? What happens in the real world? Well, here's what happens. Um, you know, you have police officers working the patrol. They maybe start their shift with uh, sheets from the, uh, the, the analysts and say, okay, we have, you know, this area of the city is a crime hotspot, or we've had this series of tr- crime trends. And they go out and they, they they do something, or they're assigned a targeted approach, or the you know that's kind of how we tackle it. But we never really step back from that and say, okay, well hold on a second here, what what exactly is it that we're analyzing? I mean, you know, look for example at the Comstat program out of New York City, which started you know years ago, trying to get police managers to be more accountable for crime in their neighborhoods, and they use crime maps, which you know very well, and they put the maps up and they say, okay, look here are crime hotspots and you know, it's bad here, it's not bad there. Well, as your data analyst, where does the data come from for the crime maps? And the answer to that question is uh, most times that I've ever seen it is the data comes from police statistics and police records and police reports. Well, the problem with that, of course, as you know, is that, you know, many uh, many crime incidents don't get reported to the police. And in some cases, like troubled neighborhoods where there's, where there are gang problems or a lot of fear, people are afraid to call the police or don't want to get engaged with the police. So, in fact, what you have is a disproportionate representation of, re- of reports and statistics based on different areas of the city. So the maps that the, the police managers are looking up on the, uh, uh, the screen in front of them in the morning are a tiny little tip of the real iceberg of what's going out there. So what I say to the analysts that are in our classes is, okay, hold on a second here. Can you look beyond the numbers? Have you ever mapped non-numerical things or things that are not typically reported in police reports? For example, fear. where Where are, are crime fear maps? That's what I'm talking about.
1: Um, and so what would be the difference if you saw a crime a map of crimes? and by the way, I definitely agree with you. Um, plus the quality of reporting, data entry. what's on a map is also only the addresses that could be mapped. There's so many factors that go into to crime mapping, and, and although I, I do like the new company that's working called Crime Reports and automating or giving crime maps to the public for, um, by charging police agencies like 100 or $200 a month to automate their mapping so that citizens can use it, what the citizens are seeing isn't accurate either necessarily, and they don't know it, so you have a, a lot of problems here. But what would be the difference from your perspective, and if you map fear compared to crimes, how would they compare well, reported crime. They,
2: they do, we, have, we have, in fact, done that. We have mapped fear, and the, the patterns are not the same at all, you know, because fear is generated by different types of experiences and perceptions. I mean, just because there may be crimes happening in an area, you know, people who are living in the area may not even know about that. I mean, let's face it, you know, for, for most people in most places, crime is a relatively rare event. You know, unless you're, you know, a real serious crime hotspot or in a gang area, the vast majority of most citizens don't confront that much crime that many times. You know, they might have their car broken into or something like that, but by and large, the, the horror we see on television is not what most people experience. But their fears are generated by those, those perceptions. And so when you map those fears, what you find is you find patterns in cities, particularly in nighttime cities where people are responding to fear where there's poor lighting, for example not where there are high, high crimes and so you, you we've looked at at, uh, at the University of British Columbia a colleague of mine Paul Wong actually did this years ago where he he mapped out the lighting areas in the in the campus and looked at where the dark areas or where the light areas were and then he mapped people's perceptions and fears and the courts they coincided directly whether or not there were crimes in those areas so I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is you know, if we're gonna really talk about, about uh, radical common sense and critical thinking in, in analysis and really understanding crime, we have to get beyond the numbers. We have to learn how to get our analysts and our people who are doing prevention out of the office, away from the computer screen, and down to the street where it's happening. And that's a whole set of tactics and strategies that we currently do not spend enough time teaching. So I'm all about getting to the street, getting, t- teaching our analysts to start thinking like educators and about learners of, of, of crime and, uh, and problems as opposed to being the ones who are simply purveying information you know I'll write a report give you a memo here it is and a lot of a lot of our police departments and a lot of our crime analysis functions are not set up to do that they're set up to provide pr- pr- provide information well I think that's a type of education but I think we have to go way beyond that if, they change it, if the change if if the, if the analyst is going to become a, a real change agent in, in this new environment of you know economic collapse as we as we speak
1: well, so when you say um, I, I know I read an article you wrote on your blog um, Safe Growth, about the the um, changes in the suburbia and how we're, we're not really looking at planning our, our communities for the future and um, some of the listeners won't know that I was um, on I was an officer and not a police officer but um, on the board of the society. Society of Police Futurists International and I have been futurists and I am a futurist and so looking at the future of, of the collapse of the economy and, and social trends why is it so important that we not only bring analysts you know obviously I'm advocating for analysis because I don't I think there's so much potential for using information to help um, make our communities safer in, in it and you need people trained to do it. You need people to look not only at the numbers and the maps and all that, but to ask the critical questions. And that's where I think that you know, when you you um, you wrote to me when we before the show that you you think you wanted to talk about critical thinking. And my guest last week, Paul Wermeli, mentioned that he didn't think we got critical thinking quite right yet. And even though I have written a chapter in the book exploring crime analysis on critical thinking, and I've read intelligence community. Um, training materials on critical thinking I don't I think we're missing I still don't think we have it and i I'm, I was a working analyst for ten years and I was trying to articulate what do we what is it that we are should be doing? what could we be doing? And I think it's still a little beyond our grasp, and that's one reason too. I thought it would be good um, to talk about that on this show. So what do you see with the future of of society and the way things are going, and um, the need obviously to provide public safety services or to create um, well-being in communities. How does this fit in with, um, with your model of what you're thinking is um, the way analysts should think and other people working with on um, safety issues?
2: Okay. Well, I tend to be, my personal uh, approach in this is to be as polemical as possible to instigate and provoke because I think that, you know, we need to rethink a lot of things we're doing. I mean, unless you're living in a cave high in the Himal- uh, Himalayan mountains, uh, it's pretty, re- pretty hard not to see that we're in a radical, not so culturally. Um, and, and, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing in, in planning and development terms uh, a revolution of a whole new way of, of uh, developing cities and of, of uh, doing our marketplace and jobs or not jobs, as it, it turns out this past month. The uh, economy has crashed yet even more. So, you know, this is what Toffler, the great futurist who wrote so many books years ago on Future Shock, he calls it the hinge of history. I think he's right. I think this is a major turning point for a whole bunch of different things. So, you know, as opposed to looking at the crisis and chaos of the situation, what I tend to do is to look at the opportunities. So I think we have a tremendous opportunity here to make some fundamental changes in how we approach safety, Analysis and community development in general. I think it gives us a chance to really start to talk about, you know, what we mean by critical thinking and radical common sense. And I think for me, those things are thinking beyond and with numbers, but beyond numbers. It's about. I'm losing you. Yeah, I was just saying about about the idea of cross-pollinating uh, our work, both with people in other professions and work with people in, on the field and in the street. That cross-pollination is something we don't do enough of. And I think what we need to do is we need to figure out how to do more of that. So, for example, when, when you wrote one of your last books on intelligence analysis, you used a method called appreciative inquiry, you know working with people all at the table, you know, co-researching your book, that sort of thing. That's, I think, where we need to start going with development and analysis is learning how to collaborate in a much more effective way, and not because we're analysts, but because we're educators. That, that's, I think, the mindset we're not in yet. We, we play a cog in a big wheel. I think we have to get, get out of that. We have to start realizing that we are the change agents, not, not somebody else. You know, we say in our workshops, Oh gee, we need our leaders to really get on board <laughs> no, no, we don't <laughs> the leaders the leaders aren't going to lead us we're the ones who are, who are the leaders. you know leadership is a verb it's, it's not a noun, and so it's something that we each of us have to do and learn how to do so you know I mean you don't need just ask your listeners i mean ask yourselves what what are you doing for professional development? what kinds of strategies are you learning? what kinds of workshops are you taking? In in uh, in that appreciative inquiry, for example, you know, what kinds of, um, of books have you read about uh, cross pollinating ideas with other fields? Do you read outside your field? You know, when's the last time you read a book on you know science or you know uh, culture and art? I mean, these other fields have tremendous lessons for us all, and we I think we need to start doing that more.
1: Yes, and that's one thing um, I was impressed by when I interviewed. I interviewed 52 people for my book, Out of Bounds, which is is a free um, book that can be read online at my blog, Analyst Corner. It was through my research for the Joint Military Intelligence College, which is now the National Defense Intelligence College. And in interviewing people, um, some of the people had very different backgrounds, like archaeology and journalism and other disciplines. And I know my background was totally different. And I feel that it really informed my choices as a as a crime analyst what how I would approach my job. I was a behavior specialist in the field of developmental disabilities and I worked for the state and traveled for counties and was considered an expert, even though just like many of us, you get a job and suddenly you're an expert. I was no expert, but I became the the person who who was the authority and going in and analyzing a behavior problem of someone who was often nonverbal and um, had a certain disability just like you and we could compare it to like you know what a certain crime the characteristics are but each each person was unique so just as you would go out into the community and study a problem and look at it uniquely you would know some facts like this is there's a lot of robberies of ATMs by ATM machines so you would know where the ATM machines were, but you'd look at the characteristics of each site that was hit and the characteristics of each site that wasn't. So just like that, I worked with individuals and say if someone was aut- autistic and they were um, avoiding, they were in a workshop that they were hitting people at certain times, um, it might be that on a rainy day the lights are on and the lights were humming and the noise was too much for that person and they were irritated and so they would lash out. But it was always an individual situation. You had to bring your science and bring your knowledge to, but assess it and assess what happened before behavior and what happened after. What was the consequence? Maybe that person was taken to another room and then they stopped. There was no humming in that room. But I think that kind of background of some kind of applied analysis field and taking that into the work of crime analysis, which really, really doesn't have much formal structure at all of how we work or how we describe patterns. Um, we have criminologists, we have um, GIS people, mapping people, we have all sorts of experts, they're little pieces, but but we don't have, um, like you said, that radical common sense. How do we take things, knowledge from other disciplines and apply it to the work we do and make it better instead of you know, just sort of doggy paddling over in the water so we don't drown.
2: No, it's a good point you raise. I mean, you know, I look at I look at uh I mean, again, this comes back to how we think and how we perceive our role. And I I all the time I talk to folks and I say, Okay, tell me not, not so much about where your crime hotspots are, but tell me about where your crime hotspots aren't. Now, I mean I'm I'm just as interested in the positive assets in the neighborhood than I am in the in the crime hotspots because you know we can learn from that i mean if we have three hotspots and 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 you know within a mile you know there are areas where you, you don't have that many problems the question i'm asking is why you know i lived in, in new haven connecticut uh, for five years when we taught at the university of new haven and uh, and before i left that program and left the city and moved out west uh one of the things i noticed was our neighborhood was actually very nice we had a beautiful walking street we had you know, uh, shops nearby. I mean, there was lots of street activity, but less than a mile away, there was it was a really, really troubled area with, with uh, shootings and, and there was a couple of robberies and there was a couple of murders there. last year I was there, I mean, it was it was it was awful. And yet we're not part of that. It was totally different. So the question you want to start asking, you know, when you look at solving problems and tackling development issues and analyzing crime, is why there and not there. And so, you know, I'm, for example, do, do people ever map assets, community assets? Do they map out, you know, what John McKnight talks about in his work in Chicago? I compare have you, have you you know, that to, to problems in the community, to stresses and to crime. That's what I want to t- start talking about is, do we, do we really know how to do that? Do we do that very well? You know, I mean, if you look at the breakthroughs in prevention and criminology and crime and policing... Look at the breakthroughs that we've had, you know, in the last 50 years. Look at the, the, the origins of where those breakthroughs come from. So, for example, let's take uh, the broken window theory out of, uh, out of New York, George Kelling's work uh, talking about, you know, fixing an area up and, and curbing incivilities and, uh, and that sort of thing, you know, uh, getting rid of graffiti, that sort of thing. I mean, do you ever wonder where that actually comes from, where the idea generated from? And he, he, you listen to someone telling stories, and 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 where he got that, and he tells this story about walking on a beat with a foot patrol cop in New York, and how the cop pointed out to him, hey, look, you know, George, uh, you know, being on the street for 25 years, one of the things you, you kind of pick up is is uh, is broken windows, and and you know, and that's where it started. What do you mean broken windows? Oh well, that building over there has a broken window. Well, within a couple of weeks, it'll all be smashed up. That's where the 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 trigger comes from. By cross pollinating. How do we do again. more of that? Right.
1: Well you know, that's that brings to mind um one thing I I think we don't as analysts do and um certainly not so much we might um sociologists, criminologists might study criminals, but do they really talk to the police that much to how much are officers debriefed? You know, how much tacit knowledge are then there has if an officer with thirty years experience, um, a really well respected person retires um and they take their computer, um, they would get in trouble for taking the computer, yet they're taking all that knowledge out the out the door and no one is asking them what's everything you know about the problems in this in your jurisdiction. And of
2: course, you know,
1: not all of it will be true because we each have limited perception by where we are in the world, you know, like my perception of, of crime problems from being a crime pa- analyst is different than someone who's like an FBI analyst working on um, terrorist issues. But, but it's still um, important to be communicating and, and valuing the knowledge that each person, including the community member, including the criminal, including the victim, has about a problem. But um, I wanted to ask you, because some people who work in the intelligence field will be thinking, oh, we can't go out on the streets. You know, I'm working, let's say someone's working on a, um, a case that's, they're investigating some kind of drug cartel activity. How would they apply this idea? Because I know some of my listeners are going to be saying, well, this only applies to the crime analyst in a police department.
2: Well, I mean, you know, obviously you're not going to bring a terrorist to your office place and have a discussion with them there. Uh, Although having said that, I can tell you lots of times when I was in the police force, after having arrested somebody who was in a gang, uh, I'd have a lot of conversations with the person on the way back to the station, and and even afterwards, once they're back on the street, you know, I want to know where they're from, what they're doing. I mean, if I'm an intelligence analyst and I'm dealing, I, I'm I'm working with uh, issues to do with, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern terrorist. Um, I, you know, I'll tell you what, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to read, be reading the Koran. I'm going to I'm going to want to know uh, what what are the orientations of. You know the culture. Uh, where you know when, what are the what are the demographic patterns? Where are people going to coming from? What are their perceptions? What are they thinking? Uh, you know, I mean, how many times have I watched Al Jazeera? You know, I mean, can you even watch Al Jazeera? I mean, that's. I mean, analysis isn't just about data that's in front of you. It's about about really digging deep into the culture. Now, I think good analysts do that, but but even still, even still, when I go to an, an intelligence conferences, when I go to crime crime conferences when I go to problem order policing conferences and they're talking about, you know, the streets, for example, or, or, issues and perceptions on, you know, say school troubles, I say to the audience, I say, well, that's really interesting you say that you're talking about schools, but where are the kids in the conference? You know, I, mean, I just came from a conference in New Mexico and they were talking about, you know, developing neighborhoods and, and there were kids there. I mean, I'm talking like 13, 15 year old kids. How many times do you see that? I mean, that's what I'm talking about is, is getting perceptions outside our normal sphere of influence. Now, it's more difficult for intelligence analysts because their topics are, are you know, broader and more global. But you can still apply the same philosophy of cross-pollination and, and you know, I mean, cultural culture points of view. Because let's face it, you're only dealing with the, the number that's in front of you, the, the You know, we've got to get outside of the box of numbers. We've got to do that. We've got to learn how to do, you know, how many analysts are doing qualitative analysis. How many many intelligence analysts are doing action research? You know, I bet many authors, uh, listeners don't even know what that means. That's a problem. So when we do this, we talk about, you know, network analysis between organized crime families, and we talk about you know, a crime series, trend series, and these are going up, is it going down, and all that kind of thing. Those are all well-established quantitative methods. And and the reason we have those is because when you go to the intelligence schools, when you go to the analysis schools, they teach quantitative methods. Okay, that's a particular paradigm, okay? So what, what I'm saying is we need to start thinking outside that box. If there's anything this hinge in history is teaching us, is you can't change the current system by thinking the same way that got us here in the first place. So we, we need to really start thinking about how do we do, you know, appreciative inquiry, action research, getting outside that buck. That's why we developed Safe Growth, was to start to get folks to do that more effectively.
1: And I'll just um, briefly and in, in inadequately expo- explain appreciative inquiry because it would take more than even one show, and maybe you can talk about action research after that. Um, when I was asked to do research for the Joint Military Intelligence College. I was asked to study success in law enforcement intelligence analysis, but I didn't want to just go ask people, um, tell me about your success. I wanted to to think about it in a different sort of way. I wanted to bring new, maybe even have the analysts discover something different about what they thought was successful. So I I received some training in in a... um, in um, a process that is called Appreciative Inquiry that originated out of Case Western University, David Cooper Rider, um and some other woman were the first people who worked using this process where instead of um, focusing on a problem, you look at a system, um, whether it be a business or, um, or a prob- any sort of um, challenge that you're facing, could be even a school, how a school wants to grow and improve, and, and start asking, what's working? So you're, you ask people to tell their high-point stories and when in their work they were able to do more than they imagined they can do and what satisfied them, and then ask them things like, um, what do they value most about themselves? So you're looking for everything that worked, and rather than try to fix everything that's broken, try to make more of what you already know works and try to actually use that energy you have by creating some hope that we can do things. We're already doing some good things and we can do things better and we can do things differently. And then working together by listening to other people's stories and finding out how to harness that energy to to be a change agent, and and actually one reason I started doing this show was that listening to those interviews was the best thing I ever did, and I had no one else could hear them but me. So I thought it would be really great to in, to um, interview people. Especially my first show came out okay, and I thought, well, this is great. You can actually make this into something that you know people could listen to and maybe inspire them a little bit to think differently and at least to know to hear the things that I've heard in the past. You know, most of the guests I've, I've known prior to the show, and there were people that I wanted to share their points of view with the rest of the world. So um, that is a little overview of Appreciative Inquiry. There's a website called appreciativeinquirycommons.org, and you can read a lot more about it there, and there's a lot more to it. But um, but action research, I, I know that's also something my master's project... Um, I had I I've talked about that because I see crime analysis and intelligence analysis actually possibly too can be a form of action research and, and could you briefly explain that what action research is to our audience.
2: Sure. Uh, the, the two main philosophies of action research that distinguish it from other forms. Uh, one is that it's uh, it's done in groups. That is, it's co you do co research with other groups. Other that's where the cross pollination comes from. Is you're not just doing research with your own data, your own department, but you're actually working with others to do it. And not just to get not to get information. You're not you know the the laboratory scientist collecting information and bringing it back to your lab. Actually, your work with them, the domain you create with those other groups, that is your lab. And so you all participate in the development of hypotheses, the collection of the information and so forth. So that's really critically important to make action research a little bit different. Um, and then the other piece is it's based in action. That is, it, it's about getting something done that's changing things for the better. I mean, it came out of the Second War and the work of Kurt Lewin, who was a a, a refugee from Germany, and he wanted to know why was it that a society that had all the great science that it had at the turn of the last century, with you know mathematics and engineering and philosophy and so forth, people like Albert Einstein, why was it that that society went so bad? And you know, it's a pro, it's a very prolific, a very uh, foreboding thought that you know when Germany was at the uh, you know at the top of its economic and social and uh, and philosophical game uh an economic depression sent it into this desperate search for answers and they came up with this madman known as hitler and that led uh Lewin and a number of other folks to leave and to start to look at where social science research went wrong and his his conclusion was it went wrong because it wasn't rooted in action it wasn't rooted in the real world so here we are now in a major economic collapse it makes you wonder doesn't it so um so that's where action research came from um in a practical sense, uh, for example, how we've applied it is we've used uh, something called problem-based learning in crime prevention training. And what we do is, is instead of running workshops in the classroom um, where there's a, there's you know uh, a board and computers and powerpoints and all that sort of thing, we do what we did with your class years ago, which is we uh, get the students to work in the community. They go out, they do actual projects, they work on real life problems. Uh, and the only difference in the in the action research setting is is the the classroom actually is the street and so what you're learning to do as an analyst or as a, as a teacher and an educator is you're learning how to go to the community itself and to to uh, you know to put your ideas together and to help the community learn how to organize and then work on problems together so our in our safe growth training which is a kind of a, mo- a modern modification of crime prevention through environmental design, what Safe Growth does is that we go right to the community and we say, okay, let's work in a neighborhood here, and we have shop owners, we have people who are in bars, we have school kids, <coughs> teachers, and what we do is we get them all together and we, we, put, we set up a team and we train the team to do its own work on itself, and, and that kind of really gets folks really engaged and really jazzed up because it's real life and it's relevant to their lives. And, and what happens is they start to take on ownership of the issues after the course finishes, and they continue to do work as teams later on. That's where I think we need to head in the future. So that, that's an application of action research.
1: Right, and that's what I, I really do like about crime analysis, too, and especially at the local level, you get to actually you see the fruits of your labor, and it's pra- very, very practical, and even though intelligence analysis at the higher level, can be practical. You're often doing one little piece of it, and you can't necessarily tie everything together and, and go out to the place where it's happening. Um, I did have an intern one summer, a very bright young man who was raised in Japan. He was half half American, and his grandmother lived near near Buffalo, and so he wanted to do an internship um, as a crime analyst. And he, we went out and did a pro, what was call, we call um, a problem plea. Um, problem-solving policing, you know, there's different acronyms for everything, but we we chose an area that had an emerging drug complaint problem, but was, you know, there were officers who would be willing to work on it. There were community activists, we didn't have enough authority to bring everyone to the table. No one was paying us, but we did interview different people and work with them and, and created a report and gave the report to to all the stakeholders, but one interesting thing is we went to, it was um, not lower middle class, it was average, and the population was older. But all the like people working in the stores on this main street were saying there's a lot of pregnant teenage girls here. It was just babies, no fathers, and we interviewed, um, um, Right Aid um, manager, and he said this Right Aid. Sells the most beer of anywhere in the whole of city, so you, you had like a, a lot of different um, indicators of social problems, but you didn't have like, the demographic data didn't reflect it, and it was just very sure. interesting. You learned so much by actually going out in the real world rather rather than just studying numbers. You know what that told us. Um, yes, we had we had a few people who were selling drugs that were the main problems, but that. We had other problems going on in that neighborhood that other people should know about, you know. And so you're not just studying the, maybe the presenting problem. Just like when a person goes to the doctor, and you might have a, one problem, you might have something that's really needs atten- more attention than the presenting problem. <laughs> so well, um, exactly it's right. really fun. It's great work, actually.
2: <laughs> well, actually, makes, it makes the work a lot more fun, more more engaging and interesting to the people doing it as well. Um, but you know, I got to tell you. I mean, you know, we talked about application of, of uh, action research and in in safety training, but it it does apply right up to, right up the the, the lines to uh, to high level intelligence analysis as well. I'm thinking of a case we worked on a couple years ago with a very large health system, a health provider, and this organization. I mean, they were. I mean, they responsible for like 12 or 15 million people. Um, they had a budget of over 13 billion dollars. It was a really large organization. And they were looking at uh, at health fraud uh, you know people who were ripping off the health system and you know, we discovered through analysis that we had a lot of organized crime, that, that particularly some of the Russian mobs were involved with scamming the health system. Now, you know, here's a system that is suffering terribly. I mean, they don't have enough doctors. They need to build more hospitals. They haven't got money for it. And our preliminary analysis that the team had did was looking at anywhere from, you know, Malcolm Sparrow from Harvard talks a lot about this in his books. And he 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 talks about 7 to 10%. Of a health system being scanned through some kind of a fraud, organized crime uh, system. Well, we found the same numbers. And you're, you're talking like 2 and $3 billion of money going out the door somewhere. And when we looked at putting together the analysis package and the intelligence analysis package, we had all kinds of problems within the organization. We couldn't, we couldn't even get data across departments. And when, I, when we did the, the, uh, the, safe, the, the safe growth and the intelligence analysis, Uh, action research training, what we discovered was we would have, you know, say uh, 30 people in the room from 15 different departments. Some of the departments weren't even sharing data within their own organization. Well, I mean, we're talking about cross-pollination outside our organization. We can't even get our act together inside the organization. So, you know, I mean, we had to break that down. And, And and we never got to talk about, you know, situational prevention or uh, analytical techniques. We talked about personalities. We talked about emotional intelligence. We talked about people's attitudes. That's <laughs> that was the starting place before we could get to anything more advanced. So, you know, there's many ways to do this.
1: So, um, we we want to ha- create some sort of new learning culture where where people aren't content with the status quo. How? What, in your mind, how could that be done? Because it's, you know, obviously beyond me me sitting here on the telephone <laughs> on my blog talk radio show, contributing a little, but the learning culture. I, I read an article, and I can't remember who wrote it, um, in one a research article about police, is, police agents organizations as learning laboratories. But I ha- I haven't heard too many people talking about this learning culture. And really, from my point of view, I came into... Policing work from totally different background without at that time any criminal justice courses, and and actually not, I had not actually anticipated having this type of career. I mean, I like, I obviously loved it, but but um, I I don't see even though policing's changed, and you say like broken windows theory and different things like situational crime prevention and um, crime prevention through environmental design and different kinds of things and you know problem oriented policing, but but actually the way police Agencies run doesn't seem like we they, the technology's better. I know in the Buffalo Police Department, um, the commissioner I was hired on under Gil Kurlikowski, who will now be the new drug czar. He brought computers to this that agency. They were using carbon paper. Um, you know, this was before I got hired, but the te- computers weren't even there that long when I got hired in 1997. So we we have technology. We have. Um, laptops in the cars, we have crime mapping, but the way people work and actually think about crime, I don't know that it's really changed a lot, you know, and I'm wondering how do we create um, some sort of new curiosity about, okay, um, this is, you know, yeah, obviously you want the police to answer your 911 call when you call, you know, so we're going to always have patrol, we're always going to have investigators because people need to go through the court system and, and justice served, but how do we look at policing a little differently and about our crime problems and our fear problems than we have now? And how do we become that learning culture?
2: Well, I, you know, I don't know that there's a simple answer to that. I mean, I, I've never found a simple one anyway. I mean, I found a bunch of different strategies that seem to work. Uh, knowledge and information, that's that's key. Having discussions like this, this blog you've set up, uh, the Safe Growth blog that I work on, um, you know, that's the beginning, I think, is, is getting the language uh, so that we're talking the same talk. I think that's a, that's a really huge step. Uh, another, I think, is we have done these incremental, what I call incrementalism, these, these, these small step changes, the analysis, the maps, the SEPTED, so forth, the stuff you're talking about with uh, Gil Kurlopowski, you know, modernizing you know, the police department with, with small pieces. That's, we've done that for a long time, and, and they're all fine. They're all good. They're all great stuff. But let's face it, they're just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to do here. And until we fundamentally change how we look at things, how we approach them philosophically, I don't think we're really going to make much of an impact. Police officers today, in, you know, they, may, they have more paperwork. They deal with different kinds of problems. But the kind of work they do is the same kind of work they've always done. And, and maybe that's the, the, the nature of the beast. But I really think that this time, the economic crash that's happening, I think this is a huge opportunity for us to really move forward in a big way. I really think that this is a chance for us to really rethink how we do some, some, some old things in an old way and start to think about it in, in, in a new way. So, for example, if you look at safety and the, the delivery of safety and prevention and policing services, the delivery of those services, how they're currently delivered, you know, we have police departments, we have courts, we have prisons, we have legal laws and so forth essentially what, we're tra- what I think needs to happen is we need to start thinking, we need to go back to the fundamentals of the U.S. Constitution, which talks about you know, by the people for the people. We need to talk about, start talking about how we do it from the bottom up. And so, in, in like, for example, in Safe Girls, what we do there is we have the, the people in the community who work in this workshopping format and do real-life problem solving, we have them start to think about how they build their own neighborhood governance how they do governance at the local level and go up from there. So you know, uh, Portland does this. They have a lot of neighborhoods that uh, that self-govern themselves, that administer their own services, that do a lot of this stuff on their own. They don't look to others to provide services to them. Now they tap into those services when they need them. If there's, for example, a robbery, they're not going to deal with that themselves. This is not like a vigilanteism. That's not what I'm talking about. So they would call the police to do that. But what, but let's face it, that represents a small proportion of what the police do. I mean, the bulk of what the police do are just the small, everyday nuisances, the traffic problems, the disorder, those kinds of things. Well, there's no reason why that can't be dealt with at a local level. So I think the new way forward is to, is to start talking about local governance, neighborhood governance, you know, safe growth at a small local level. And that brings a whole new set of roles to the analyst. That means how do we learn how to teach people to do this themselves? How do we help them to organize? How do we help them to set up nonprofit organizations? How do we help them to create community gardens and things like that that they can do on a regular basis locally first and then draw on the services second? That is happening in a small way, but I think this current hinge in history gives us an opportunity to expand that vision much, much bigger. That's what I think radical common sense is all about. So for me, I think that I look at the neighborhoods. I look at neighborhood development. I look at the bottom working up. I work with organizations like the Local Initiative Support Corporation in New York City, the stuff they're doing with Safe Growth. That's who I look to. I'd say that's where I think our future is. And we need to figure out, have dialogue like on the blog and other places where there is a common community language. And I think we need to start developing those strategies, like, like Safe Growth, for example.
1: Well, and um – and then there's the other issue of transparency. As I was talking um, about the the service crimereports.com that um, offers crime mapping that the citizens can use, and so you you bring these tools and you also show what kind of work the police are, what kind, you know, what calls, what types of crimes are happening, and you have people saying, "Okay, what are you doing and how are you doing it?" And we need to be tracking what we do. I think um, one of the reasons the UK um, Went toward the intelligence um, the policing model earlier than we will. Besides the structure of policing being less fragmented, is that they had to do with fewer officers sooner than we did, and um, the, the issue of corporacy. How are you? How are you? How are you managing the resources? You know, a police department gets so much money. How? What are you doing with your money here? How are, are you? What are you? What is? Are your problems, and how are you addressing them? Rather than are you just, you know, answering the call within, you know, two minutes or whatever? You know, like you're just responding to problems. What are you doing about the problems? How can you do more with you? Do more with less. And, and we're, we're going to, especially in this current. Economic crisis. We're going to have to learn how to do more with less, or do better with less. Perhaps yeah. not more, because we're all pretty stretched. So, um,
2: well, um, I think I think we have the answer to that already. I don't think we need to look that far. I mean, this is what I, one of my greatest breakthroughs is, is: is working in neighborhoods and doing neighborhood development. Is is there are a lot of resources that already exist. We're either ignoring them or we're duplicating services in other agencies because of the philosophy and the approach we bring, top down to the to the to the problem. And, but I think we have a lot of those strategies already there. You know, when I, you know the thing about the intelligence-led policing f- program for me is that in a lot of ways it's not that intelligent. I mean, I, I understand the philosophy of working with numbers. I understand the philosophy of evidence-based prevention, evidence-based police. I understand the philosophy of that. I just think it's wrong-headed. And I don't mean to say that we shouldn't use numbers or we shouldn't use computers. I think well, we should use all those things. But I think the question isn't, is, is not the analysis. It's the we. Who are we to do that? Who are the we that is doing that? And when I ask that question, what he has covered is the, it's the same old, same old. It's us doing analysis for them on their problems. And as long as we continue to do things for them or to them, we won't do them with them. So I think we need to do analysis. We need to do intelligence, blood police. We need to do all that stuff. But we need to have the, the whole a community at the table, and I don't mean you know a, a room full of three hundred people. You never get things done like that. But, if, but that's part of the lesson. That's part of the new strategy is learning how to do this properly. I mean, there are ways you can set teams up where you have groups around the table who are there. So we're talking about intelligence about like policing, working on school problems. Okay, how many times do you have the school kids sitting in the room talk, doing your analysis with you? You know, never, or or hardly ever. You know, and so that's that's the key is not the. Not the techniques and the tactics we bring to the problem, it's the fact that we're bringing it to the problem, not doing it with people in the community, solving collaborative problems. That's the difference. You see, so it's not well, it, technology I'm focused on; it's how we do it.
1: Right, and and I do think though so. it's it's not an either or. We need we do need to, you know, like a, um, a police agency. Um, a government, you know, they have their task, they have their role. But um, one thing that I was thinking about um, recently reading about the Somali um, immigrants and how there's a fear that that we'll have terrorist cells here with that population because they're disenfranchised. But how many people are just studying the problem rather than working with the, the Somali immigrants and actually getting to know them and actually treating them like people rather than a problem to be studied.
0: And, and I know a Buffalo has
1: Buffalo has um, a, a rather large um, population of Somali immigrants compared to our, our dwindling population. So it's not as big as they, they named a few cities in this article. But I was thinking, you know, I already knew there were problems with um, the, the commu- that community feeling integrated into our community and some problems where people were being victimized before I left the police department. So I imagine... So um, because none of us speak the language and, um, we're, we're, and people are somewhat afraid of, of different people who are different from them, but are they really thinking we could just work with people and sit with them at the table and talk to them and, and, and help figure it out? I don't know. And so well, I, they, they I understand can. your point of view. Pardon?
2: They, they can do that. I think that's absolutely right. And you're right. we're not advocating the uh, bo- uh, you know the abolition of government or policing or anything like that.' that's not, the point. That's not what, the, what I'm saying. What I am saying is that, that we just need to put that in proper context, and I don't think it's there right now. So for example, let's take terrorism, anti-terrorism work. And we have this pro- new program that we're starting up this year called the uh, the Atrium, ATRAM, which is an anti-terrorism uh, risk assessments method. And it has, uh, we, we do critical infrastructure protection on buildings. We have software we use. We we have uh, identification theft online courses and so forth. And that's kind of our strategy. But the whole philosophy we're bringing to it isn't just about the technology. It's about how we apply the technology. So we're, we actually, when we do any audits, we never do the audits to our client. We always do them with the client. They're always on the team. We have members of the security department, members of the employees and so forth. So and we, we, we you know, we, monitor security carefully, but we, we make sure very, very early on in the game that, w- that the input we're getting isn't just about doing an analysis on the security of Windows. It's about what is the culture of the community. You know, the thing about identification theft is we can put all the biometrics we want into cards, but unless we know exactly where, who the person is with the card, somebody have a, has a driver's license with their photograph on it, we have no way of knowing whether they have false ID when they got the driver's license. So all the biometrics in the world under driver's license isn't going to help us. What we need to do is be able to step back a bit and help the actual registration agent at the door learn how to ask the questions. Learn, it's the human dynamics, the human equation that makes the difference. You know, People at the table, people participating in the audits, learning people's skills, be, behavioral patterns. That's where I think we're going to make the biggest impact. And so that's the pr- approach we take in Atrium. We do technology, but we do it with the clients themselves, with the, with the community. I think that's where we have to go.
1: And what what is the benefit to that? You know, so you're doing some some assessment of um, risk, and and what happens then? Why do you think that works? Is it because when you leave, it's still going on. The people carry it out. Yeah, it does. Or?
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. So, for example, let's take a, a facility, or a hydro facility, or some kind of a power plant where they they're trying to do security and they have they have locks and they have cameras and so forth. Well, our position to that, our position in this situation is to say, look. You have cameras, that's fine. You have people monitoring the cameras, that's fine too. But remember, one pair of eyes or two pairs of eyes or three pairs of eyes looking at 30 cameras is not going to have nearly the impact as your 300 employees on the floor who are all geared up and, and trained and know not just about security but are committed. You know? So we're, we're asking questions like, okay, what are your incentive plans? In your in your collective bargaining agreements. Now, what's the morale like in your organization? I mean, if you have really poor morale and people are getting getting really screwed over, pardon pardon the term, you know, and they're not really that enthusiastic about your organization, what are the chances you think they're going to care about security on the site? Not very high. So, what we're doing with the term is we're saying we're looking at technology and cameras and so forth, but we're looking at to do it with your with your employees. They're the ones who you know, those three hundred eyes. You know, magnify and multiply your impact of security a thousandfold, and so that's where I think we, we, you know where we're working bottom up with the client is working on those strategies. A lot of the security folks who go into those organizations don't do that. They they go and say, oh, let's look at your hedging, let's look at your your perimeter your perimeter security, let's look at the badges on your on your employees. They're not looking at building up the morale of your staff to 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 take a role an active role in security on your site. That's That's
1: how you do it. And and it sounds very empowering. And it sounds like
2: what you're saying is
1: moving from what has really been a paternalistic um, culture. Like I'm the authority. I know what to do. Um, And just trust me to a more um, inclusive model where you gather all the real stakeholders and and they become part of the process rather than told what to do and they become they they shape the process together um and that does require a whole new way of working um but people like it people like it though right i mean nobody i don't think when i interview people for my research project i had very few people who didn't mind talking about their high point story and their work you know like people like to be engaged they like to to be part of something larger than themselves and um and they want to be safe too. <laughs>
2: I would say. Oh, sure they do. Yeah. Well, they they have a personal commitment to doing that. I mean, democracy means more than going to the polls every four years. It means it means you know uh, participating. I mean, you know, democracy is. I think I saw it once in a film where the, the actor was saying democracy is. You know advanced government it's, a, it's advanced citizenship you know and it is it requires involvement and too many of our neighborhoods and too many of our suburbs people are just not engaged they're too busy trying to make a living and we need to figure out ways to re-engage the community whether it's at a at a hydro plant or a power plant looking at security or whether it's a, a, in a neighborhood that has gang problems or wherever it is and i think that re-engagement process is where we're where we're going to have to rethink how we do things you know, Einstein said years ago, you can't solve a problem using the same thinking you did to get there in the first place. So you have to create a whole new way of thinking about that. And, I, you know, for me, that's what radical common sense is all about, and, and using creativity in, in the actual change agent. I mean, you consider yourself a, 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 you know, a change agent, then you're a leader by definition. So what are you doing, you know, in terms of your professional development yourself? What are you reading? Where are you traveling? Who are you talking to? When you approach your work, who's involved? Who's sitting at the table? That's, I think, where we need to start. The beginning of changing the community isn't about changing the community; it's about changing ourselves. So that's, I think, where we need to start.
1: Right. We have about four minutes left, and I, I was just thinking about how, you know, now with um, internet technology, also um, you have people who are able to do things on an individual level, um, such as, you know, I can do this show because I just want to, and I can, I can. Create a blog just as you are because you want to, and it can be available to the whole world. And so, um, I think though many people don't are, might be a little fearful of the idea of being a change agent. Like, who am I to be a change agent? Um, I, I haven't, you know, I, we both probably believe strongly that there's no doubt that having a safer world is a good idea. So it's not really quite, um, you know, I don't have a lot of ambivalence about that. But, but. Taking that responsibility to be a change agent. How do you see? How can we? How can um, people um, move from where they're at now to becoming a change agent?
2: Well, I, I think that whether we realize it or not, no matter who we are or what we're doing, we are. We have by default. We we influence people. We. Behave in a certain way, we act in a certain way, we do in certain things in a certain way that influences one way or another positively or negatively. so whether we admit it or not we ha we're already doing that so I think for me, the question that I think any of the listeners want to ask, and I ask this to myself all the time and it's this is the challenge of course is is what am I doing to professionally improve myself what am i what am i what am I actually doing this week? what's my plan this month to 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 read a new uh, book on fields unrelated to mine, you know, uh, who am I speaking to outside my sphere of influence, um, who, who could give me information that will help me, who, where have I traveled to, things like professional development stuff. I think that's where you need to start. And I think also, too, we, we need to be realistic about this, that if we're going to start cross-pollinating the way we do our work, we need to start reaching out better, and we need to learn methods on how to do that properly because there's a whole bunch of tactics on how you do that. Um, you know, from uh, empowerment methods to appreciative inquiry to action learning, so action research, problem-based learning. Our le- listeners have to learn about this stuff to, to be able to do it. That's what gives them power, it gives gives them influence. So I think that's where I would start.
1: So people need to step out of their box, and it's it's really not just professional development; it's it's individual development. I mean, all of this when you read a different book, it doesn't just you know, say you, let's say you, you were not happy in your job and you are you know you, you want to stay in the profession, but you're not happy in your particular environment. It doesn't mean you give up, you, you develop yourself, whether or not you can use it at the moment, um, and you find ways to use it, whether if you can't use it in your job, you become involved in your own community and you use those skills in your community and you learn from other people working in your community. Um, we just have about a minute left. Do you have any closing remarks. Go
2: ahead. Well, my thought is this, that, that no matter what profession you're in, if you're thinking about this hinge in history right now being the time when we can make a major impact on, on moving forward with, with uh, safety, public safety, neighborhood development, all those kinds of things that we've all been about for so long, then, then one of the first things that we can do is to say, my profession isn't just doing you know, X, Y, or Z. My profession is I'm in the profession of being a learner and being an educator. That's my primary goal. And so my goal, my, my, my objective is to, to become uh, better at, at that personally, to be able to track my success and track me, you know, track individually yourself. I mean, do we ever do that? Do we do, you know, I, you know personal journaling on what, when we were successful, when we weren't successful, how we individually can move forward? That's, I think, where we need to start is self-reflecting on our own skills and abilities and professional development, and then moving outwards from there. So my suggestion is: I think these blogs are great. I think that the, you know, groups like the the uh, Police Futurist Society, the uh, Problem Based Learning Society in policing, I think that's where the new future is for the rest of us to figure out how to go bottom up in our strategies to solve prob- problems.
1: And and from um, my interviews and from knowing a lot of analysts, I would say
2: um, crime and intelligence
1: analysts are generally innately curious and. I think of um, the analysis process really as more of a learning. We're always trying to learn something new, using real-world data, and as you suggest, not just using the data that's at hand, but going out into the real world and and, um, learning from the other people, um, learning the context of problems, learning the cultures, learning as much as we possibly can makes us better analysts and thus more likely to be effective change agents. So I, I think... Yeah, I thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. Um, it's been great um, discussion, and I'm I'm going to post this on the Police Futurists International um, website. If you know, I I had a blog on there, and I I've actually not been involved as much involved in the association, but I think this is really a good show to think about the, the future. Where do we want to go? Um, and I thank the listeners for joining us on Analyst Corner. Stay tuned for more expert guests and best practices in crime and intelligence analysis and policing and suggested best practices of the future. Um, Thank you, Greg, and stay safe.
2: It's been great fun. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.